R.I.P. Harambe, sipping on some Bombay, passing on by the zoo. You know we think of you. How'd you like that? Did you like that? That was pretty good. Does anybody have any idea what I just sang? Does anybody have any idea? Anybody out there? Well, today we heard a song. It was the first song that Elon <laughs> Musk dropped on Twitter from his record label that only lasted a day. <laughs> Less than a day. Less than a day. And, and the song was dedicated to Harambe the gorilla, the great ape that passed away. And it was, <laughs> it was just such an interesting peek into the mind of an individual that is so lauded for his technological and business achievements, but it, it's opened up a larger conversation. And the conversation is really about letting ourselves be seen fully in all of our wackiness and all of our glory and all of our bizarre ass crazy creativity and how that is something in the human spirit that we want, right? We want to be seen. We want to be loved and accepted for exactly we are all of our quirks and weirdness and bizarreness and crazy ass stuff in our minds and our hearts and yet the thing that we want so deeply is also the thing that terrifies the hell out of us you feel me Whitney yeah yeah I'm also noticing how much you can hear the uh it's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Well, we're recording our first episode in my closet. It's a nice closet. We had to move in here because there is now a fountain running in my backyard. <laughs> so it wasn't working sitting in front of the window, but it's actually really cozy in here. I think you, you hit the nail on the head before we started recording. Whitney was like, do you feel like a little kid in a fort? And yeah, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> that is pretty accurate. This is actually a really lovely place. I don't know. I feel very secure and very cozy. And, yeah, uh, it's like that being in the womb type of a feeling. Yeah, or... Like after your parents tell you to go to bed, they're like, all right, video game's off, phone's off. And like secretly you're just under the covers like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm asleep, wink, wink. And like here we are like recording a podcast in the closet. Nobody knows. <laughs> it's funny because I've heard other people talk about recording audio in the closet before for soundproofing. From my ears in here, it sounds awesome. Yeah. We would just need like some of the foam nipples on the walls, the foam padding. But I it's... don't think we really need those. I think it's like... I actually just like the way they feel, the texture of yeah, them. And also saying the word foam nipples sounds... I don't really like that term, though. It makes me a little uncomfortable. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Boundary. Boundary. Speaking of being childlike, the topic of today's podcast is yeah. about vulnerability, which I think is a lot about tapping into your childlike side. Mm -hmm. It's going back to the things that you did as a kid when you felt less vulnerable. Well, maybe we felt vulnerable as kids, but we weren't really aware of it in the same way we are as adults. Yeah. At least in the fear side of things. Yeah, I think there was more willingness as a child to take risks and just and be open. And I mean, it wasn't even courage per se, because I mean, if I think back on my childhood, like, and I have evidence of this, which is why it's easy. 
I have actually cassette tapes that I recorded when I was super young. Like I have these cassettes and they still play. I played them a couple years ago and they're still, they're still there, but it's songs and it's sketches and it's characters. And I mean, I'm super young. I think I was like five or younger, maybe between the ages of like three and five, I recorded these things. So it's like, I don't know, there's just a willingness when you're young to just whatever wants to come through, comes through. That's a beautiful thing that I think we sometimes have to work very hard to keep alive as adults. There's this idea that I think what we want is to be fully seen and fully accepted in all of our weirdness and wackiness and strange ideas and crazy things in our head that we never share with anyone. But what if we gave ourselves permission to just play full out and share the weird things on our mind and share the crazy ideas. And I'm saying it out loud because I'm reminding myself to do it. Like there's a lot of weird stuff I don't tell people. And there's a lot of stuff that I hold myself back from, I don't know, expressing to others because I'm like, they're going to think I'm totally nuts. But what if, what if I just stop caring? What if we all just stop caring and just let those wonderful, wacky, crazy, quirky parts of our personality come out? Because In reality, if we get that vulnerable and we get that real about being who we are and showing others, that's going to be the only way we are going to feel truly loved and truly seen and truly accepted. Instead of, I don't know, 75% of us, oh, I'm only going to show you 80%, but I'm not going to show you that last 20% because it's too crazy or too dark or too weird. Maybe I don't even understand it. We spend a lot of time together in our friendship and our business partnership, and there's stuff that comes out of my mouth, you know, and sometimes we'd be like, where'd that come from? I don't even know. Like stuff will come through and I'm just like, I don't know. It's just to understand oneself is one of the greatest quests of our existence. But I don't know. I think one of the other greatest quests is just to allow ourselves to be seen in all of our glory. And and like you said, Whitney, at the beginning of this, allowing that childlike spirit to come through more often instead of defaulting to the fear of, wow, if I really tell this person this thing or share this idea or do this crazy voice or whatever it is, they're not going to understand. Mm-hmm. And there's so much pain and not feeling understood. Deep. There's so much resentment, I think we feel. Maybe resentment isn't quite the right word, but it feels like resentment, I think, because people feel like they're angry that they're not being who they really are and being who they want to be. It's funny when you're around children as adults and you see all the weird stuff that they say and do. And it's just fascinating to watch a child, especially a child that's comfortable expressing oneself. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of children are also very fearful. And I think that often plays a role or is often the result of the way that they interact with their parents, because some parents really shame their children. And sometimes when I think about shame, I think about my mother and how I felt like that was kind of her go-to tactic for raising children. She used these kind of shame tactics because she was trying to protect me and my sister. She didn't want us to embarrass ourselves because maybe she was afraid or she believed that if you do something that embarrasses you, then somehow you're not going to succeed in life or something. Does that make sense? Like embarrassment in her mind would equate to being perceived in a certain way or lack of respect or lack of people perceiving you in a certain way, right? Right. So that was her way of keeping you guys, your status safe or your perception of who you were safe, perhaps? I'm still trying to figure out exactly what that meant. My sister and I are very goofy. I've been around them both. It It is quite fun. It's quite nuts. Especially when we're together, my sister and I get really goofy. I see her really goofy with her friends. And I feel like I'm, I can be goofy with some of my friends, not all of them. 
I also don't feel repressed, though. Like, I don't feel like I need to be goofy all of the time. But I've noticed throughout my relationship, the dynamic between my sister and I and our mom is how many times we've kind of gotten in trouble for being too silly or goofy or something, or my mom getting really frustrated. Or if we're out in public, there's always this feeling of like, don't do that. That's embarrassing. Like, And I, I really think as an adult, that was my mom's way of just, like I said, trying to protect us because she didn't want us to get into the habit of being too goofy or silly or doing things that she perceived were embarrassing. I think maybe that was about. And I feel like a lot of parents or the parents, at least, that say these things to her children, the children and, and ask them not to behave in a certain way. It, it's really like a it's really a protective measure. Or it's that the parents don't want to be embarrassed. It's either one of the two or both, is that if the parents' kids are acting up, they're afraid that that's going to make them look like a bad parent. That's right? probably a huge component of that, sure. And so I think this just becomes perpetuated, is that we become very hyper aware of what we think other people are thinking of us. Or to be more precise, we become hypersensitive and fearful that other people are going to perceive us in a certain way. But the truth is, we don't know how other people perceive us unless they tell us. And most of the time, nobody really tells us what they think of us unless we ask or unless they're somebody that really wants to express it. I think these days we're on social media. And on social media, a lot of people are expressing what they think of one another, for better or for worse. I believe it's usually for the worse, right? Also feel like it's so interesting on social media when somebody expresses how they feel. A lot of the times, I feel like the very kind things that people say, the great majority of them are kind of like these canned responses, like, oh, you're so cute, or that's so funny, or, you know, like, they're just kind of these, like, one-liners that people will repeatedly say. And then the same thing goes with negative, is that a lot of times when someone says something negative about what they think of you, that's like, it's coming from this weird knee-jerk reaction of getting, of feeling really judgmental. But is that really how they feel about you? Probably not. It's probably how they feel about themselves, or it's probably how they feel about what you're doing, but has nothing to do with really you. I'm just always fascinated by people's reactions to one another, especially when it comes to judgments, because it's really easy to judge somebody and it's really easy to pay someone a compliment, but it's harder to give a deeper piece of feedback and say something like really heartfelt. And something that makes me sad is that we've gotten to this place, at least in my experience or my perception, where it just becomes so commonplace to have superficial feedback with other people, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I find myself just not even believing it when someone says something really nice. And then if someone says something critical or mean, I'm just immediately going to put up my defense. But it's like, either way, I'm blocking myself from a deeper connection with somebody. So ultimately, it's just hard to know what anybody thinks of you. And ultimately, it doesn't really matter what they think of you. But yet we live in this society where we are kind of ruled by what other people think of us. And so no wonder people have trouble expressing themselves. So I think this has been concerned since the dawn of humanity, right? Because one of my favorite quotes among many is Lao Tzu centuries ago said, care what others think of you and you will always be their slave. So I think that there is an opportunity to liberate ourselves emotionally, creatively, spiritually by realizing that we have no control over others' perception of us. Most of the time, as you said, we have no idea what they're even thinking about us. 
unless they tell us or put in the comments below. So I guess it's building this mechanism of not requiring or perceiving we need anyone else's approval or permission to do anything. But growing up in a situation like so many of us have where if I look at my own situation, right, you know, growing up with a single mom, I think that because I had one parent, there was this idea that if I screwed up too badly or did something that was egregious enough that she didn't approve of, that in my child mind, it would be like, well, I've only got one left. And if I screw this up with her, like I'm out of parents. So I think on a primal level, in terms of undoing people-pleasing tendency that I have had, and mine has been like, oh, I'm going to be the entertainer. I'm going to be the goofy guy that gets everybody laughing. I'm going to be like the wacky dude that lights up the room. And by lighting up the room and getting people laughing and being the most entertaining light in the room, no one's going to abandon me. Like mom's not going to, you know. So it was almost like this way of leveraging my innate talent as a child to also get my needs for attention and affection met so that I wouldn't be left. But as an adult, right, who acknowledges these childlike belief systems that are still there of you've got to wow people and you've got to entertain them and you've got to make them laugh so that you can win their approval and affection. It's very tenuous because I've realized and I really feel like I've worked on this big time in the past like six or seven years, but not feeling like I need to walk into public situations or groups being like, ah, I've got to win everybody here and taking that pressure off of myself that I'm an adult who's taking care of himself, that my needs are met. I don't need to break my back trying to make people laugh or win their love and affection because if I don't please them or win their love and affection, it has no direct effect on my day to day. It's acknowledging the little child inside that still thinks he needs that, but the adult version of myself being like, no, we're safe, we're good. We don't need to keep doing that. So this whole thing is such a deep exploration into what happened to us in our childhood and acknowledging and being present to any of those mechanisms that are still operating in adulthood, because some of them are devious and very subtle. I think these are ruling a lot of people's lives. Yeah. And again, going back to social media, whereas this is one of the massive ways, massive forms of communication with a great group of people, right? We have our closer relationships with people that we maybe privately text, talk on the phone with, get together in person. We have our family members. Then we have all of these people that we could possibly be connected on social media. It doesn't even matter if you have a lot of followers because anything you do is open to the entire world. So any time that you post something, it's possible that some, a stranger is going to see it. And actually, it's very likely that a stranger is going to see it just based on the way that social media works, especially if you use hashtags. If you use a hashtag, you're almost guaranteed that at least one stranger is going to see your post. They have no context for you. They don't know you, right? And so in a way, that's so exciting because you think, well, maybe I can matter to that person. I can impact that person. There's something so exciting about being able to connect with people all around the world. There's also the side of what if that person judges me or what if that person criticizes me? What if this person shames me? And as we see so much, we've been thinking about doing a whole episode on this, but I suppose we could just talk a bit about it here, is this public shaming. And I think that that's part of what gets in the way of vulnerability is that we see so many instances of people making mistakes and then being put up in front of the crowds, right, for something that maybe they didn't even intentionally do, maybe they thought was okay at the time. I mean, I'm really a big believer in everyone's trying to do their best. We're all different from one another. So somebody's best may seem like your worst. Somebody's best choice may seem like the wrong choice for you. 
And we live in this time now where there's almost always going to be somebody who disagrees with you. And because we can reach people all around the world, you have a much higher chance of being connected to somebody who doesn't like what you're doing or doesn't like the way that you look, doesn't like what you're saying. And so it's almost like I have this massive curiosity of how this is going to affect vulnerability in the human psyche, because I feel like as human beings, we're wired to seek out approval. We're wired to react to based on what other people think of us. And so for me, especially, I found this incredibly challenging, having a YouTube channel and an online presence. I cannot make a single video on YouTube without getting at least one thumbs down, right? So that means that every time I do anything, there's at least one person that doesn't like it. And some people, I feel like, find it really easy to just brush that off. But for me, even though I've been doing this for 10 years, every time I see a thumbs down, part of me feels hurt by it. And part of me feels a bit less open to being vulnerable. Part of me feels more afraid of being vulnerable and expressing myself because there is this pain that I feel when somebody shows me that they disapprove. And so I know I can't be the only one and whether somebody admits it or not. What about you, Jason? Like, how do you feel when you get a thumbs down? Like, authentically, though, because I feel like Well, first, let me hear your answer. But I would really love to know the deep answer. Like, does the thumbs down on YouTube or mean comment on Instagram or wherever, how does that affect you? I mean, it depends on the nature of it and the context. I mean, it's a very it's a very aqueous thing. So to to be honest, like thumbs down doesn't bother me because when there's a comment, okay, I know that there's another person who delivered that took time to write this message to me in the comment section. I know that a thumbs down, yes, a human being initiated the thumbs down was like, I don't like this. But to be blunt and honest, no, thumbs down don't bother me. What I have noticed does bother me is when I feel like, I'll give you an example most recently, okay? So a week from today, I'm launching this cleanse program, right? This 40-day cleanse program. And I put out a video and I've been putting out content about why I'm doing it, why I'm actually doing the cleanse, right? I'm doing the 40-day and I'm inviting other people to do it with me. And someone commented on Facebook that I was fat shaming, that I was fat shaming because I was talking about losing visceral fat and detoxing from glyphosate. And and I I gave all these potential benefits of like, hey, the products in this cleanse and what we're going to do could help you with all these things. Well, they latched on to the people in the video that were of a very specific body type, I suppose. Let's just call them fit you know, not unattainably fit, but like, here's some fit people. And they wrote a small paragraph in the comment section about how I was insensitive and I was perpetuating a stereotype of trying to keep people in an idealistic type of body. And I mean, I saw it and it was like, wow, this was not my intention at all. And they actually went on a diatribe because someone else was engaging with them in the comment section. I didn't respond. And they went on to like, I think they even used the word evil toward me. Yeah. I mean, I'll look back, but I remember that word out of everything they said, other than fat shaming, I remember they used the word evil. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, I could take this to heart or I could really take a step back and realize that this person is extremely sensitive about something. And I looked at their account and their account was, I don't remember it exactly, but it was something about like heavy vegans or fat vegans or something about that of like, whatever, we're a certain body type or we're overweight or we're not society's definition of fit. And we're also vegan and we're proud about that. And whatever I posted hit a massive nerve in them. I wasn't intending to hit a nerve. I felt like I was just putting out a very general call of like, hey, jump in this program with me no matter where you're at and let's go in. And they, it struck a deep chord within them. 
And so there was just this diatribe with a few people in the comment section. I didn't jump in. I didn't feel the need to. I was just watching it. But to be labeled as evil or my intentions are evil or that I'm being insensitive, I had to sit with that for a second. And not everyone's feedback is true, right? We always talk about, I think, in whatever, the wellness community or people are doing conscious work on themselves, like everyone's a mirror to a degree. Well, can I pause you there? I think this is something that I've been getting very passionate about. I've been, I've been really fascinated by Buddhist perspectives, and I'm also interested in some Christianity perspectives and Christian perspective, I should say. So I guess I'm fascinated by any kind of big mentality whenever it relates to spirituality, right? Because to me, spirituality is bigger than us as individuals. And I think one of the most eye-opening things that I've read in my lifetime, or I should say the theme of what I've read, was when I started learning about the ego. And I really could pinpoint it. In fact, I was at Jason's place. I don't know. Was it your book? I think I might have had it on Kindle, but it was the book, A Return to Earth. Is that what it's called? A New Earth. A New Earth. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I always get the title messed up for some reason. But I read A New Earth, and I know I was at your place, Jason. This was back in like 2015. And it was like a huge aha moment that's had a ripple effect ever since for me. And really what it set me on the path of being able to step away from my reactions more. Now, I haven't quite mastered that. I don't know if I ever will. And the more I learn about meditation and the ego and Buddhism and spirituality in general and all this is that (laughs) I don't know if anybody ever masters it, but I did get a lot of tools over the past few years. So when you talk about this mirroring, which I think is something that's very common in this type of spiritual advice, is that they say that everything that happens in your life is a mirror. You're saying now, Jason, that you wonder, is that true? Is this a mirror, right? And so what I'm thinking well, where's the mirror? What is it reflecting? It's not necessarily reflecting that you're evil. It might be reflecting that part of you thinks that you're evil. Because sometimes when we get triggered by something, there's an idea that we only get triggered by the things that we think are true about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. So it could be that, or it could be just that this person is misunderstanding you and that's where the pain is. Right? So it's not about like, of course you're not evil. And when you say not everybody's opinions of you are true, but maybe it's like somehow shining a light on a darkness that you're feeling within yourself and that's why you're feeling pain. And I actually am starting to get really excited about those painful moments in my life because when I feel those that pain, I can choose to sit with it and lean into it and explore it versus get defensive about it. And that is part of the message that I want to share, not only in this episode, but I get really excited about this concept because, man, can you imagine how much less suffering there could be in the world if more people just didn't have a knee-jerk defensive reaction just Mm -hmm. because something said something about them that wasn't true? You'd be a vastly different world. Be a vastly different world. And I think just to backtrack on what you said, I think it was my attachment to be understood that wasn't met. Like this person doesn't see that I'm putting this out into the world, offering it because I want to help. I want to support. I want to be of service to help people heal, right? To get out of suffering. And then to see that was, yeah, I mean, what it triggered in me was like, wow, this person is vastly misunderstanding my intention. They're vastly misunderstanding my message. So yeah, the trigger for me was being grossly misunderstood. And I think also we could flip that around. Another person we can drop in as a resource is Byron Katie, who teaches people how to like constantly flip around their thoughts and beliefs Mm -hmm. to get to the root of it. 
what if that person felt misunderstood by you? Mm. So it's like the two of you together. And that's, I think, where the mirror is, is that this person saw what you were doing and thinks like, Jason doesn't get me. He doesn't accept my body. Like maybe this person was triggered by you and felt like you were not accepting of them. And so then they wanted to show you that they felt that way, but they did it in a way that made you feel like this person was. So both of you simultaneously may have been feeling misunderstood. And the other thing I find is interesting is that you said that part of the pain was that you were trying to help people, right? Well, that's the other thing that I've learned a lot through being a content creator and a teacher and a coach is that some people just don't want to be helped, period. And some people don't want to learn what we want to teach them. And so as teachers, we have to learn to not be attached to the result. And just like with self-expression, I think that that's one of the most challenging things to do, but one of the most crucial things we can do is to learn how to be unattached to how people react to what we put out in the world. And we talked about this in the other episode, didn't we, about relationships, about expectations, right? And so I think that's one of my biggest focuses right now is going through life having less expectation. So perhaps, Jason, when you did this video, your expectation is that people would understand your message and that people would receive your message and they would like it and they'd be grateful for it. And so perhaps it was painful that somebody was basically rejecting your message. And I think that's what happens a lot of the times when we express ourselves. We go in it with this expectation that somebody's going to like the way that we do things, like the way that we show up, there's going to be good. We're going and expecting good. And again, coming back to more of a Buddhist perspective, which is like, just don't have an expectation. And it's so much easier said than done, because I think we're conditioned to have expectations. We could also look at it from the perspective of the very popular mindset around manifestation, is it's like, you always should be expecting good and expect that this is going to happen, which I think is very powerful. But sometimes when we put so much weight on our expectations, it can also have the opposite effect. If things do not go the way we want them to, then we feel heartbroken and we feel discouraged and we feel rejected and all of that. And so I kind of want to find a balance between doing things and doing it without expectation. But Maybe having a slight expectation that it's going to go well, like somewhere in between. I feel like that's my new (laughs) technique, my new tactic. And the other thing is, too, that I'd love to hear perspective on, Jason, is, is this idea that I've been struggling with lately is when I get so in my head sometimes with fear that I'm going to be misunderstood or rejected or criticized or whatever, that has led to this cycle of feeling unsure about myself. And so it's harder for me to post the type of content that I want to post because there's part of me that's like, is this really what I believe in? Is this really how I want to say it? Is this the truth for me? Is this who I am? Am I showing up in as my authentic self? Honestly, I've been struggling a lot with that recently. And I'm pretty sure that the reason I've been struggling is because I've been feeling sensitive to other people's reactions. Mm. And so it's almost like I do this walking on eggshells type of thing where I just don't want to get criticized. So maybe I'm going to make sure that I pick the perfect photo for Instagram and maybe I write the best caption. I only post this type of video on YouTube. Even doing a podcast is challenging because it's like people can misunderstand us at any moment. And that brings up fear for me. So self-expression can feel really frightening but it's stifling. 
and I don't want to be stifled. So I guess my method is I just have to keep taking it day by day and trusting and knowing at my core that like you, I'm not evil and I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I want to be understood, but I guess I need to be detached from being understood. Right. Because it's also impossible. And I don't use that word often. Okay. We have what? 7.2, 7.4. I don't know. Close to 8 billion people on the planet. All nearly 8 billion people are not going to understand or get you. So I think it's, again, undoing the mechanisms or belief systems. I'm not even going to say from childhood. I'm going to say this is a generational thing because I've thought a lot about this from an anthropological perspective, right? Like humanity and tribalism and how we interact as civilization. And it wasn't too long ago that we were living in small tribes. Human civilization as we know it is not that old. And I think in some tribes, if you were to do something that would go against the code of the tribe or the rules of the tribe or the religion, whatever it was, there was this possibility that you would get cast into the wilderness, right? The tribe would disown you. The tribe would shun you. You would be an outsider. And back in tribalism culture a few thousand years ago, that meant death, right? If you didn't know how to hunt or you were not with the tribe, you were not in the village, like doing something that went against the code or doing something that got disapproval from your peers, you're in the wilderness fending for yourself. So I think that there still is this primal fear within us from our days of being in a tribal culture that it's still in our DNA. It's still in our wiring. I believe that wholeheartedly. So this resistance we have to going against the grain, this idea we might not be understood, this idea that people may disapprove or worse, if they disapprove, they shun us, they cast us out. We're not one of them. Like that's like a primal fear of death, of being cast out that's still operating in us, I believe. And beyond that, you know, I want to kind of go back into this public shaming idea. I don't see much difference. When we were most recently burning witches, lynching people, taking people to the guillotine in, in the middle of the square, and hundreds or thousands of people would gather in the town square to watch someone's head being cut off, or them being hung, or them being burned at the stake, okay? Instead of us doing that in the town hall now, we're doing that in the forums. We're doing that on Instagram. We're doing it in Facebook. So the lynchings and the beheadings and the burnings are figurative. But my thing that I'm meditating on, again, anthropologically, is what is it in the human mind? I'm not going to say spirit, the human mind, that we are conditioned to, there's some part of us that thrives, that gets off on, instead of physically killing someone, killing their reputation now right? That shame, to me, it's the same. The beheading and destroying someone on Instagram or destroying someone's reputation, to me, it's the same urge within people. Like people, it's kind of sick, like they get off on it. And I'm curious, what is in humanity that feels the need to do that, right? Was, what is in us that feels the need to do that to people? I was thinking about this too when I watched, there was a newer documentary series about Ted Bundy, who I didn't know that much about. And spoiler alert, <laughs> If you were like me and you didn't know that much about his story, he got the death penalty. I actually didn't know that or I had forgotten about it. So I was watching this documentary and it's leading up to it, leading up to it. And I kept thinking, wow, are they really going to kill him? And it gave me this perspective of having a completely different viewpoint on the death penalty for the first time. Well, maybe not for the first time. I guess I hadn't really thought much about it. But it was perhaps very disturbing to me because in the documentary, they keep showing the crowds of people that stood outside the building where he was being executed. So even though he wasn't like at the guillotine, they were still a mass of people that stood around the building and then cheered once the news broke that he'd been executed. 
And I found it so disturbing, even though Ted Bundy did some really disturbing, horrible things. The documentary actually humanized him in a way for me and to a point where, and not to make light of this, I certainly don't mean to, but I guess it wasn't too far from how I felt about Breaking Bad and what's the name of the character? Walter White, right? Where you're watching this series, as Jason and I did, we were really big Breaking Bad fans. We watched that series, at least for me, I really liked Walter White, but he did some horrible things. And that was one of the big things about that show is that people kind of were rooting for the bad person, right? I guess like that was similar to how I felt about Ted Bundy. I wouldn't say I was rooting for him, but I just didn't think he needed to be killed. And I think it comes down to this idea of culturally in many societies, it's like if you do something that the rest of the world sees as bad, then you will be punished. And this whole idea of punishment, I think is really fascinating because is it necessary for humans to be punished? I guess that's one of the bigger questions. That is certainly a way that we control society is by having various forms of punishment, right? Whether it's small punishments, like you get a fee if you're late in paying a bill or something's taken away from you if you don't do something, right? There's so many rules around the consequences, right? I guess it's making me want to go deeper into psychology. Like what would happen if those weren't there? Would everybody just be running amok? Is this necessary, for example, to know that if you were to kill somebody, that you may be killed as well? It's like an eye for an eye or that whole idea. But then you start to think about it in a deeper way. And it's like, wait a second, it's so contradictory. You're saying it's not okay to kill someone, but the punishment for killing someone is that you'll be killed. (laughs) I think that's the other thing when I was thinking about the death penalty. And I think about any case where people are on trial for murder or something. It doesn't bring that person back that was killed, right? Not at all. It doesn't help with the pain of the family or the friends who are suffering from the loss of a loved one. It's actually adding to it because someone like Ted Bundy, he has people that care about him, right? At the very least, family members. There's also the show on Netflix, Making a Murderer, and it's always been so sad Regardless of if you believe the main character is guilty or not, at least the second season of the show was so centered around his aging parents and the anguish that they had, knowing that they were getting older and their son was in prison, right? And so no matter what, there's pain going on. And it's just so fascinating that as a society, as you were saying, we kind of not only rejoice in some people's pain, which is pretty sick. But there's also this idea of like not recognizing that we're just causing more pain. And the belief that by creating and causing more pain, it will take away or reduce the original pain. I don't even know if that's what people think. Maybe or... Or it's it's like this idea of justice. Justice, retribution, self-righteousness. It's deep in the human psyche. I mean, this is as old as civilization. And the question is, what is the ripple effect of this, of continuing to perpetuate a system of, and I know we're using extreme examples of murder here, mass murder, right? It's a really light topic we're on. But I think it's the exploration of what is in us that feels the need to punish and have retribution and have revenge and either physically kill a person, or as I said before, what we're doing now on social media is literally killing their reputation. The urge is still the same. You must be punished. You must be killed. We must take you down because you've wronged us. 
And that is God. I mean, it's like a virus in the human psyche. And I don't necessarily have an answer. I know we're not trying to attempt that purport that we have an answer for you, listener, dear listener, but it's something that I think we truly, truly need to be looking at in this age of digital connectivity, of people spewing very hateful comments and not taking any responsibility for the energy or ripple effect that creates. And I think what's at play here to me is I think there's a disassociative effect with digital technology. Here's what I mean. I remember years ago, it might have been one of the wars of the last 20 years, where they had like drones for the first time, and they released the footage of these drones going to different buildings, and these remote-controlled drones launching missiles and blowing up these buildings, right? And I remember like, wow, this looks just like a video game. Oh, how interesting. The video games that we're playing as children, especially the violent ones, are creating a disassociative effect, so that when you get into the military, potentially... We have drones now that unmanned drones that can go and shoot missiles and blow up a building. And we're not seeing the people dying inside the building. There's no human connection. There's a disassociation. And I think that that is pervasive on social media and the computer and the phone now where we can blurt out a comment. I hate you. I hope you die. How could you do this? You know, I hope you whatever the stuff people say is horrific, but they're not present to the fact that there's a human being on the other side of that computer or phone receiving that hatred, receiving that vitriol, receiving that venom. And we think it's okay to do that, but we forget there's another person on the other end of that message. I don't even know if people are forgetting that there's another person. I think that to your point, we become so numb or we become so deep in our suffering and we're not given the tools to not even heal our suffering, but to understand our suffering. I really Mm -hmm. think that most people are struggling with some sort of pain in their lives almost every single day. Sometimes the pain is very minimal or barely noticeable. And sometimes the pain is so persistent and it goes on for days, weeks, months, years for some people. I think that is part of life for whatever reason. But I think what people are not fully aware of is that everybody is experiencing that. And by causing suffering to another being, whether it's a human or it's an animal or a plant or anything else that's alive that can feel pain, you're not reducing your own suffering, as you were saying. It might be a distraction, but like you were saying before, it creates a ripple effect. I think that's what people are not present to. I think, you know, that person that wrote that comment to you on Facebook is probably very aware that that would hurt you. But it's like hurt people hurt people. And also this idea of some people hurt people want to hurt other people because they don't want to be alone in their suffering. And actually that encourages me to talk about my own suffering more because maybe if more of us talked about and expressed how much we're suffering, the other people, which is most of us that are suffering, won't feel as alone. You know, and I think that's the other thing with social media. Hopefully we're starting to see a turn. It's becoming more prominent. Other people talking about their flaws, talking about their challenges, because so much social media for so long was about the highlight reel. It was the photos where they looked their best and looked their happiest. It was them celebrating the best parts of their lives. But that was one second in their life. That photo is literally a second in their lives. So they could have started crying immediately after that photo was taken right? But yet we see that photo and we think that their whole lives are as much joy as they were feeling or expressing in that moment. And so I think it's so important for us to let others know that they're not alone in their suffering because maybe that would help others feel like they don't need to cause suffering in other people because the other people are already suffering already. 
right? So it's like, that's what I wonder. That's what I think is probably going on when someone says something really cruel, is that they feel misunderstood, they feel hurt, and they're hoping to either shine a light on how they feel so that you know how they feel, and or they're hoping that maybe you'll feel they can pass on some of their pain to you so that they are carrying less of it, or at least that they're not the only ones carrying it. It's a really profound realization. I mean, everything you just said, like, honestly, it, like, it hit me in a very profound and emotional way just now. And I think the thing that I feel the most is just how much pain people are in and how little they're talking about it and silently suffering. And I talk a lot about this. I have talked about it, you know, in my battle with mental health and the struggles that I've gone through with depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation and a lot of the things I've been struggling with the last five, six years. But to your point, talking about it and having a dialogue, an honest dialogue, um, reduces the isolation. It reduces the feeling of like, I'm the only one feeling this. And I think for us and for all of us to encourage just a much more authentic expression of what we're going through gives us permission to have conversation, hopefully loving, open, balanced conversation around a lot of these subjects. But a lot of the pain, I think, comes from this illusion of isolation of I'm the only one going through this. I'm the only one feeling this way. Or people may be feeling like they don't have anybody in their lives they can express this to. And in that, rather than getting, say, triggered by a comment like this, I start to feel like I have more compassion for whatever that person may be experiencing. And I think compassion is a doorway to healing. Compassion is a doorway to healing. Instead of keeping this stuff bottled up and hidden and in the shadows in whatever, in the dark recesses of our mind. A lot of this kind of goes back to, I don't know, I think of all the myths that we grew up with, you know, all the stories of the dark monster in the cave. And, you know, we're so afraid to go in the dark cave and like confront the dragon, confront the monster. But once we get in there, for me, from an ideological perspective, it's like the monster is just an aspect of us we haven't embraced or loved yet. To me, the dragon doesn't want to be slayed. The dragon wants to be understood. The dragon wants to be danced with. The dragon wants to be acknowledged. Where it's like, slay the dragon. No, the dragon's part of you. The dragon is part of your psyche that has malice or pain or suffering or feels the need to wound others or include them in your suffering. The parts of us that aren't healed or acknowledged yet. Like, to me, the myths that I grew up with that I love the most are even more compelling the more I understand myself and go like, oh, yeah, when I was growing up, it was always like, yeah, kill the monster, kill the dragon. I'm like, no, no, the monster is me. The monster is a part of me that I haven't understood yet or loved yet or acknowledge it is even there. And that makes me think about how much of a difference it would make if we became less self-absorbed with how other people impacted us and how people treated us and started thinking about how we're treating others. We have to start with ourselves, but I think a lot of the times when we feel hurt by other people's feedback, that's a selfish emotion because we're saying like, you hurt me. First of all, I was taught at a young age that We choose our feelings. No one can make us feel a feeling. Our society has this kind of idea about this in the language. It's like, you made me feel blank. And I've been working very hard for most of my life to not use that phrase because I'm some control of my feelings. Other parts of my feelings are maybe not within my control. But regardless, those are mine. Those are not something that somebody else is giving me. As you were saying earlier, they would trigger me to feel something, right? And like you were saying, too, about that person's reaction, something you said triggered that person, but you never meant to do that. First of all, it's never a personal attack, but maybe that person felt personally attacked, right? 
And so again, it's like that is just kind of a very self-centered reaction is saying like, you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you back. Whereas what if instead when we felt hurt by somebody, we recognize that that person's going through something completely separate from us. That person has lived a life that we don't know anything about, or we only see a fraction of, and they may not be expressing themselves fully or authentically where we could even get a glimpse into what they're going through. Maybe they've got this mask on. That's not even who they really are. In fact, I think a lot of people walk around with a mask on trying to protect themselves. So what we see is not the reality of who they are. And so it would be fascinating. Something that I want to do more is when I'm feeling hurt, it's like not to take it so personally. I can just say, I'm feeling hurt, but I'm not feeling hurt by that person. I could say those people shined a lot, a light on some pain that was already there within me that just happened to come out whenever they did what they did, right, is separate from that person. So the first thing that I think we can do is kind of like separate our emotions and our reactions from one another and then work on ourselves to the point where we also have the ability to give compassion to that other person like you were saying and try to understand them more if we're choosing to, right? That's always a choice. (laughs) Do we want to engage with somebody and try to get to know them more? Do we care enough? What if you reached out to that person privately and just said, hey, you know, I'm sorry we had this miscommunication or even just say, I noticed we had some sort of a miscommunication and I'd love to know more about who you are and what you're doing, Mm -hmm. right? What would it be like if we had more of those deeper exchanges with people? Because that leads me to another thing. I think with social media, When you're interacting within a group, you can often feel like you don't matter because you're in a group. At least that's something that I've experienced a lot is, well, my comments don't matter because there's hundreds or thousands of people here. No one's going to acknowledge them, right? But how do I know that? You know, I could say something really kind and that could be the best thing that person on the other end heard all day. And collectively, as we know, we do matter. We actually matter more collectively We have a bigger opportunity to create a ripple effect as a group than we do as individuals. So it's just so interesting to think maybe that person on the other end just didn't even think their comment mattered. Maybe they wanted to hurt you and maybe they just think, eh, it's not going to matter. I can say whatever I say. But if you took the time to let this person know that they mattered, it can create a whole new dynamic there. Yeah. Well, that's really facing the discomfort of moving through the pain of being misunderstood. And instead of compartmentalizing it or shirking it off, like what if I took the time to genuinely understand where this person's heart and mind are coming from? It's an interesting perspective. I think it ties into self-expression because the more that we can create these deeper connections with people, I think the more safe we feel. And simultaneously, the more that we express ourselves, the easier it becomes. And we can learn all these different tactics for feeling less hurt by how other people respond to us or feeling just completely unattached. Yeah. And the other question is something I've been thinking a lot about based on a book that I'm reading right now, which I can put in the resources. And as usual, I forget the name of the book. Written by? (laughs) No idea. Cool. (laughs) What does it say? (laughs) I will put it in the book. I mean, I'll put it the book in the resources. It was just a really beautiful perspective on pain and how so many of us are kind of trained intentionally or unintentionally 
to run away from our pain, to escape it, to heal it, to cover it up, or to get it to go away as quickly as possible, or completely just run away from it, which is virtually impossible. So it's interesting if we can't escape pain and we can't ever know exactly how long pain is going to last and of what magnitude. If pain is kind of always there, as I was saying, like there's some sort of suffering going on all the time, what if we just accept it and sit with it and be okay with it as opposed to to magnifying it and, and to heightening it? It's almost like there's two types of pain. There's like the initial pain that we feel and then there's like the pain response. Does that make sense? Of course. When something hurts your feelings, you could just choose to let it be and let it just sit with it until it's gone. But a lot of us, I think, when something hurts, we get into this place of hurt. It's like another level. It's really hard to describe. Do you know what I'm saying? Like when I think about my pain, it's like like a wallowing in it or it's almost like I'm trying to detach myself when in a way we're just one with the pain. The pain is just part of us. So that's why we can't run away from it because it's just part of who we are. So in a way, we're trying to like deny or hide from or run away from pain. It reminds me of the movie, The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I saw a little clip from it last night. And I remember when I first saw that film years ago when it came out, I didn't get it. And then I've watched it as I got older. And then I suddenly feel like I understood it. I mean, that pain is, I mean, that movie is ultimately about pain. It's trying to escape pain as these two people that loved each other broke up and it was so painful. They wanted to escape it. So they tried to physically alter their brains so that they wouldn't remember the things that were causing them pain. But then they realized that they didn't want to run away from it because it actually took away part of them that they loved. So it's almost like if you see pain and love as hand in hand, if you cut out the pain, you're also kind of cutting out the love. And that's what happens with self-expression too, is like, if you don't express yourself, you're not fully in the love that you have. You're denying part of the love. You're not letting yourself experience or show love because you're afraid that it won't be accepted. What you said reminded me of, I don't remember who the quote's from, but that your capacity to suffer is as great as your capacity to love. And that if you know what great suffering is, you can also know great love. And I mean, look, you meet someone, you fall in love, you have a choice, right? You can either risk being seen in all your glory and being risk like showing this person who you are or just get really freaked out and run. And I feel like our dreams, our creative life, the things we want to do are no different, you know, than a romantic relationship. It's like we have this point of choice where we feel magnetically drawn to something. We feel like there's almost a third force that's drawing us to a person, a thing, a dream, a relationship. And some people will be overwhelmed by that feeling and terrified by being seen, terrified by taking that risk. And they just shut it down and run. We always have that choice. I mean, that point of choice where it's like, and I think it's a daily choice. I mean, I know making it sound like there's one choice, but it's a daily choice to risk being seen in all our glory and who we are or be terrified of what's on the other side of that. But to me, if I think about all of the people I've been inspired by, you want to call them heroes or avatars or people that have the great writers, the great comedians, the great musicians, the world changers, they were willing to risk that. 
They were willing to risk being seen. They were willing to risk living for something greater. They were willing to stand in the terror of the possibility of suffering and love anyway. Because I think Lissa Rankin in The Fear Cure, she has this amazing chapter in like, if I'm in relationship with you, deep loving relationship, family, children, romance, whatever it is, you know, and I'm paraphrasing what Liz has to say in the book, but it was something to the extent of I, in being relationship with you, I'm giving you permission to break my heart because at some point you are going to leave me. At some point through the dissolving of the context of this relationship, through divorce, through death, at some point you're going to break my heart. I'm going to break your, you know, that permission and knowing that through the depth of love, I'm also giving this relationship permission to break me open. Oh my God, the courage in that. Like I'm feeling emotional just like talking about it. That's really courageous. Like it's really courageous to do that. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to be taken for granted. And to have that frame on it, like I'm choosing you knowing that at some point this is going to be over. It's brave. It's brave. I think that's the other thing. The more that you get into these type of spiritual-based books, as we're referencing, the reason that I'm so drawn to them is because they're coming back to this core and showing more of a simplicity of life because everything ends. And that's one of the core philosophies of Buddhism is that nothing is permanent, right? So every single thing that we experience, and I think for me and many people, we kind of hide from that or we're not always aware of that. That to me is where things like the ego and all of this is is so fascinating because I think as a culture, we're so afraid of things ending. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of our youth ending. We're afraid of relationships ending. We're afraid of any form of pleasure ending. It's like, what can we do to extend it? You know, how can we keep our lives going for as long and our relationships going for as long and how can we look as beautiful and attractive for as long as possible how can we keep hold things on and there's so many instances of people just trying to hold on like we've got hoarders at the extreme right or people that just like don't want to get rid of something and the more that you dig into all this you realize that everything has a period of time that it'll be and you never know when something's going to end you don't know when your life is going to end you don't know when anything in your life is going to leave you And so if you can kind of become more present to it and focus on the love, as Jason's saying, then it becomes a little bit easier. (laughs) Because being in love and just loving anything in general is really about being present for that very reason you're saying, is that it's going to go away at some point. And so some people are so afraid of the pain that they don't even want to engage in it because they would rather not experience something that they know is going to end and quote unquote, not have the pain, then have something phenomenal in their lives, knowing that it may cause them massive pain. But we never know how much pain we're going to have. We don't even know how long the pain is going to last. Everything is unknown in that sense. So you might as well go and dive deep in. And as Jason's saying, have all this courage. And the other thing that made me think of is too, in the books that I've been reading lately, is that Love is something that we feel inside as individuals. And sometimes it is shared in some sort of a mutual way. But as we talked about in our relationship episode, we never know exactly what the other person is thinking or feeling because we're not them. We're not in their bodies. We're not in their minds. We're not in their hearts. So we kind of assume, oh, yeah, we both love each other the same. It's mutual. 
but it's actually more of just a choice. It's just two people that are feeling love for each other at the same time that seems to be about the same and they're choosing to be in it together. But another spiritual perspective on this is that if we just focus on the love that we have inside, it doesn't matter if it's reciprocated. We've just been trained to want it to be reciprocated. We have been trained to be upset if it's not reciprocated, right? And that's just that ongoing pain that has been experienced throughout human history. We look at love songs and stories and so many stories about unreciprocated love. And so I know for me, I grew up and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the worst. I don't want to have unreciprocated (laughs) love. But you know what? We don't have a choice most of the time when it comes to love. I mean, this is a big thing that I've been learning about myself lately is I've tried to choose who I love and don't love and when I love them and when I don't love them. And I don't think I can. And the more that I read about this, the more that I'm thinking, I think I'm just going to love who I love when I love them for as long as I love them and I don't have much control over it and trying to control it so that I only love people if they love me back, I think that's really how life works. Beautifully said. That was so beautifully expressed. And if we're talking about what kind of love we want to foster within ourselves and extend to others, because I'm I'm about how can I cultivate love without conditions, like unconditional love. And this reciprocation piece, I actually had a conversation just this last week about this very subject of looking at mechanisms inside of me And not just in a sense of romantic love, right? But, and you know this, having launched so many projects, both of us have, but within me, I've noticed, Whitney, that that fear in me of unrequited love, unreciprocated love is not just about romance or the the person I'm dating or seeing or with. It's about putting so much love into a project, a book, a TV show, you know, all the things and how crushing it felt when I felt like I needed to get something back in return. I put so much love into the TV series. I put so much love into the book. I put so much love into the course. I put so much love into the song. I put so much love into whatever, the band. I think about all the creative projects. And I think one of the biggest sources of suffering for me and one of the biggest stumbling blocks, there has been some level of reciprocation expected. The book has to sell. Millions of people have to watch the show. People have to buy the course. People have to buy the record. People have to come see me live. And the deep pain I've caused myself by expecting something to be returned for the love I've given. It is some of the most deep, visceral pain I can possibly imagine, and also taking responsibility for the expectation I've had in thinking someone needs to give me something back. It's so painful. It's so painful. That is, I think, one of the greatest sources of pain. And again, the more that I've been reading all these different texts I keep referring to, This is the subject that comes up time after time after time, is that I think we've just been either trained to think and behave a certain way, or we haven't been trained to do it the quote-unquote correct way, right? Yes. And to me, I don't like using the word correct, so I'm trying to find some other way to express that, but I would say the... Sustainable, sane, balanced. (laughs) I mean, I guess that's always put it into comparison. (laughs) Which I'm trying to avoid doing. But I guess for me, I personally think life feels so much easier and so much more in harmony when I look at it less from trying to force things, trying to control things, trying to manipulate, trying to have expectations, trying to get something back. That's all so self-centered. And the biggest advice you will hear about practically anything is that if you go through life 
thinking about how you can help others, that's where the biggest reward is. And the other big reward in life is going through life, experiencing as much love as you possibly can. And I think serving others is love. So if you lead from love, unattached to expectations, unattached to whether or not it's reciprocated, and you're so focused on how you can help other people, to me, if you could simplify any of the advice that I've read over my entire lifetime, I would say it all comes down to that. And that's like, love is the answer, people say, right? I think that's partially what that means is it's so many of us have been raised, again, inadvertently, inadvertently. I don't think our parents are like, you better only do this if you get something back for it. But there's so much messaging in our society, through our educational systems, through the media, through our family, through our friends. It's just kind of this whole muddled perspective on life of avoiding pain and trying to only get something, right? That greed, it's basically greed. And yet most religious texts will tell you that (laughs) greed is bad and love is the most important thing. But we still just feel so confused. And I've felt less confused when I just think of it more simply at coming at things from love with that expectation and looking at how I can improve other people's lives instead of just how can I improve my own. In terms of coming back to the original subject matter of self-expression, what if your self-expression was unattached to how people reacted to it? But what if the self-expression was coming from a place of deep love for yourself? and a place of wanting to offer that love to other people. And it's tough. It's tough to do that because you've got to learn how to love yourself and you have to be unattached without those expectations and you have to be putting yourself out there for the reason of helping others. I mean, we see this all the time on social media. Jason and I often talk about this. You'll see somebody's social media post and you're like, wow, that's a really beautiful photo, but it feels like they're posting this photo to try to get my approval. Or they're posting this photo because they want me to buy something or they want to convince me of something. You can feel it when somebody is coming from a place of wanting something from you. And I'm sure I'm guilty of that. I'm definitely guilty of that. I know whether it's come across that way or not, I know that I've posted things many times online in hopes of getting something from someone. And I can always feel it not feeling completely right. And so it's part of my aim right now is how can I lead more from a place of love, unattachment, and serving others. What if we just woke up every day and had that as our mission? Mm -hmm. Every choice we made, just think, is this a loving choice? Am I expecting something back? Is this improving people's lives? Maybe that would make self-expression easier. I think to wrap up, we should come back to the inspiration for this episode, which was Elon Musk's. Yes. Yeah. So today we're driving around and Whitney, she's going on Elon Musk's Twitter account. And she's like, what is this? And there's just this smattering of random bizarreness that didn't make any sense. She's like, open up your phone, look this up. So open up the phone. And at 5 a.m. this morning, Elon Musk released a rap song. (laughs) Elon Musk, founder of Twitter, SpaceX, released a rap song. founder of Tesla. Tesla. What did I say? Twitter. Oh, sorry. Tesla. He loves Twitter. I bet you he wishes that he had He was the founder of Twitter. The founder of Twitter. (laughs) So he releases this song about the deceased and beloved gorilla Harambe. And <laughs> you can look it up. We'll put it in the show notes below. If it's still up, you might take it. Who knows if it's still up. I'm going to download it. That's just one of those songs that brings me so much joy that I just want to keep listening to it until I get sick of it. You know what it reminds me of? Those songs that we listened to back in 2012, the auto-tune songs. Oh, yeah, 
and how those were just like joke songs. But the point being is that sometimes people do really wacky things that Uh you could look at and say, that's stupid. What's the point of this? This doesn't make any sense. But it brought me and Jason so much joy today. Yes. And it also reminded Jason of himself. Yeah, because I write a bunch of weird, crazy songs about animals and insane things that are on my voice memos on my phone that they're just there. And it reminds me of like, first of all, Elon is a person who has been fearlessly tweeting as long as I can remember and repercussions be damned. He's just going to say what he wants to say. And I think from a creative perspective, there's going to be probably tons of people that are like, this guy's insane. He released a rap song. That's not appropriate. <laughs> the founder of Tesla, and so he released a rap song. Stay in your lane, Elon. You know what was inspiring about it? First of all, I can relate because I have so many crazy ass songs no one's ever heard. But second of all, I don't believe when people tell you to stay in your lane. And I'm not taking that advice from people. They stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Do what people know you to No, Hell with that. Has anybody actually said that to yeah, you? No, no, I'm saying like the social media mavens and entrepreneurs and people out there giving out advice. But I'm, that's not to you specifically. So isn't it world, funny that you have seen that advice given like to a big group of people, but you still internalize that as being towards you in a way? Interesting. True. No one's ever physically told me, Jason, you should stay in your lane. You're right. You're right about that. I mean, there's advice out there. That's the thing that we're in this time where there's all sorts of advice and conflicting advice. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, nobody has the answer. I don't even think there is such thing as the answer unless it is what I was saying earlier about coming from a place of love. I believe love is probably the answer. So (laughs) everything else people are saying are just a matter of their opinion and perspective and experiences. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that it applies to you. And in fact, it probably doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, the people, again, I think that have inspired me most in any field, there is an element of freewheeling creativity where they don't stay in their lane. Their music, art, film, writing, innovation, like whatever it is, if I think about, yeah, the artists and the people that I'm like, that's a hero of mine. There were many lanes and the lanes didn't make sense and it didn't matter because they were courageous enough to express something in themselves that wanted to be born. And to a certain degree, people's opinions be damned. And those are the people that inspire me the most. Those are my heroes. And the list is too long to name. But that's a common thread is having the courage to say, you know, this might scare the crap out of me because no one's devoid of that fear. But the love was so great or the desire to birth that thing or the desire to share that thing, they made more important than the fear. They chose it anyway. Or it's like this. I think what's really inspired me about this Elon Musk rap song it was probably him hanging out with his friends uh-huh. or acquaintances. I don't know. I would really love to hear the whole story behind this song. I wish he'd go back in the Joe Rogan podcast and tell the story. Because I feel like Joe Rogan could get him to talk about yes. this. Yes, But it's like when I heard that song, I was laughing because it sounded like something that I did as a kid. As a teenager, I used to do these things all the time. My friends and I would get together and at two in the morning on Friday night or whenever it was, we'd be making wacky videos that made no sense just for the fun of it, right? Yeah. And this is before YouTube, but I bet you I would have posted this stuff on YouTube as a kid. For sure. Just like people are on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and all these different platforms just expressing themselves and doing wacky things as teenagers, right? I mean, that's the whole fascinating thing about them, right? So that's kind of like what Elon Musk was doing. And it was so amusing because I could relate to it, but not many of us have the 
confidence to put something out. Or I don't know what Elon thinks. I'm sure he gets afraid of something. Who knows if he's fully fearless of what people think. But the difference is that he's doing it anyways. Yep. And, you know, he got in trouble with the government the last the year in 2018, yeah. right? Because of some wacky things he said online and, you know, statements. And it's like people can criticize him, but he's still going. And he's just this remarkable human being that is creating incredible things for the world and doing it in a way that other people perceive as very odd because it's unconventional. But he's doing it anyways. And I think if he wants to express himself by making a rap song with his friends in the middle of the night and posting it and then writing some weird tweets about it that don't make any sense, so be it. And he probably didn't care what people think. But you know what? He made me think more of him. I actually felt like I liked him even more yeah. because of it. Yep. And he brought me joy. Yep. So I guess it's a great place to close because you never know the things that you're afraid to show others, the things about you that you're afraid to express. You may actually bring people closer to you and bring joy to them and a sense of connection and somebody else saying, hey, you know what? I've wanted to do that thing too, but I haven't had the courage and now you've given me that courage. Mm. And talking about if we're coming back to love, serving others, maybe self-expression is a huge part of that puzzle piece, the huge puzzle piece in the grand scheme of puzzles. I don't know what I was trying to say there, but I know what you meant. Yeah. Yeah. So we just want to encourage you to create, be fearless with sharing your creations, show people who you are. Or you could feel the fear and do it anyways. You don't have to be fearless. Yeah, that's true. Oh, did I say being fearless? Yeah, there's no such thing as being fearless. (laughs) But who knows? Maybe Elon Musk was really afraid, but he did it anyway. That's true. That's true. Right? We don't know what goes on in his head. Yeah, we don't know what. (laughs) That is the point. We don't know what goes on in anyone's head. But I don't know. I'm a big fan, I guess, in closing this of like experimenting with things. Thoreau said the more experiments you make, the better. Nobody knows what they're doing. No, hell no. If you look at it, (laughs) I actually find comfort when I know that nobody knows what they're doing. Everybody's suffering. Yep. (laughs) And somebody's going to criticize you no matter what you do. Like if you kind of like look at all those things, they sound horrific. But then in a way you're thinking, well, damned if I do, damned if I don't. It actually provides a relief. The reason I laughed is like because even you saying it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I even feel more space around it, actually. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. It's like we kind of try to run away from suffering. But what if you just embrace the suffering, embrace the fear, realize that everybody's feeling it. And in a way, we're all connected anyway. So. It's almost like nothing matters, so you might as well live life as if you're doing everything that matters to you. Yeah, right on. Yeah, it's a good way to look at life. My stomach's saying in the podcast, too. I know, my stomach's been, been so, gurgle schmurgle, as you like to call it. Gurgle schmurgle. So the stomachs have spoken here on the Wellevator podcast. So we love you. Thanks for joining us. And we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 